Just a note before we start, if you haven't listened to part one of this discussion, please go listen to that one first. Otherwise, enjoy the show. This is one of only a few planes that I've flown where it has such a high degree of thrust to weight that you can do a maneuver like a tail slide and decide you don't like the tail slide, apply power, and fly out of the tail slide while going backwards. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada, with your host, Warwick Patterson. I'm going to keep the intro to this episode pretty brief, as it's part two of our discussion with Jeff Ladder. Jeff's an airline and airshow pilot, and in part one, we talked about what it takes to develop an airshow routine, some of the techniques and development work he does before the season starts, and the business of air shows. In this episode, we dive deeper into his latest acquisition, a Yak-50. The story of finding that plane and bringing it to Canada is a good one, and then learning how to fly a single-seat aircraft that nobody really knows anything about. Jeff even had to teach himself Russian to read the POH. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Here's part two. Enjoy the show. Your, your latest acquisition, which has kind of got a cool story, and the, I think the story of getting your new yak to yak Canada 50. was, yeah. It's quite a, yeah, it was quite a process. So at the end of 2017, uh, I was starting to think about, I wanted to have maybe a change in the in the airshow business. I don't think it's good to be stagnant and stay with the Nangchang forever. I love that airplane, by the way. I mean, I have had the opportunity to fly a large number of warbirds, including some big piston fighters, and I can honestly tell you that the Nangchang is my absolute uh, favorite flying the, um, of the group. Hmm. And I'm a little biased, maybe because it meant so much to me because it took so long for me to get it. And I got to be honest with you, when I when I first started saying I wanted to get into aviation and even into airshows, I spent most of the time hearing two things. Uh, it was either <laughs> you're dreaming, buddy, and it's never going to happen, uh, or they would start off this conversation with, "Well, no offense, but you're this. That's never going to happen." And then that turned into "Yeah, but." So I heard a lot of "Yeah, buts," like, "Oh, I finally got a Warbird. Yeah, but it's not a P fifty one." Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> a lot right. of that. Yeah. Um, air shows were the same. Aviation's uh, been the same the whole way through. So in 2017, I was getting towards the end. I loved the Nangchang, but I thought maybe it was time to expand into something else. And so I started thinking about selling the Nangchang and buying a Harvard or selling the Nangchang and buying something else with more performance like a Yak 11. And we started to look and I talked to our maintenance guys and I was kind of feel, getting a feel for how much it would cost to do one of these aircraft. And I kind of decided to shelve that and to fly 2018 in the Nangchang. Well, in 2018, I went down to Tatima Academy, that Sean Tucker school. And I wanted to do more advanced and unlimited aerobatics because that's not really my expertise being in warbirds. And I think it's really important as pilots to push your boundaries, right? Whatever that is. If you are if you own a 172 and you get your night rating, it's the same thing. You need to push your boundaries a little bit and expand on your flying acumen, right? So yeah. I decided I wanted to do advanced and unlimited. So I went down and we flew the extra 300 a couple times a day for a week in this aerobatic performance training program. And while I don't have the passion for those aerobatic airplanes at all, I certainly enjoyed the roll rate and the high Gs and what I could do with the yeah. tumbles and tail slides and inverted flat spins and all these things I could you just can't do in the Warbirds. And so I came back from that in the spring and I sat down uh, with my wife and I said, you know, I love flying the Warbirds, but I'd like to build something in the airshow business, maybe more aerobatic. 
And I started talking to other Warbird guys, and they all said the same thing. You should look at a Yak-50. A Yak-50 has the aerobatic capabilities nowhere close to an extra 300. But it, ha it has a Warbird history because it was developed by the Yakovlev Design Bureau, which was the famous World War II Russian fighter design bureau out of Moscow. And the Yak-50 was one of the last aircraft designed by that same design team that was successful with the Yak-3, Yak-7, Yak-9, Yak-11. And so... I started looking at the airplane, and I don't know, I wasn't convinced at first. But the more I learned about the airplane and the more I realized the, the history in it, the more I started to think, like, this would be perfect for us because we want to stay in vintage historic aircraft. And I have definitely fallen in love with the Eastern Bloc aircraft and the, the way that they're built and how they fly. And I really thought it was neat, especially because they made 312 Yak-50s plus two testbed aircraft, so 314 in total. There are only 80 left because there's no general aviation in the Soviet Union. So they were all part of something called the DOSAF, which was a loose armor of their Air Force, their Army, and their Navy aviation. And they would take pilots to, to go fly these international competitions. And that's what the Yak-15 was designed for. It was specifically built to, world, to, to, specifically built to win the World Aerobatic Championships in the late 1970s. And yeah, I, was, I, I read that. And I was trying to think of what it was up against at the time. What would uh, like America? Uh, Zlins were really popular. Okay. The big teams yeah. in that time was the British national team, the French national team, and the German national team, and they were handing Russia their rear ends at all of these competitions. And they said, "Enough right. is enough." Now they had some Zlins come to the Czech Republic that they were using that were very good airplanes, but they wanted something of their own. And so they went to this Yakovlev Design Bureau and said, "Can you do it?" And they said, "Sure." And they took. They took the Clark YH airfoil, but in the low plan form uh, shape of it, um, the same that they had on their Yak-3 fighter. So it's a super fast flying wing, right? Mm -hmm. um, they put big ailerons on it. They put the landing gear, the original ones retracted inward. And they realized the airplane wasn't draggy enough on downline. So they actually took the landing gear off of a Yak-18, which was a 160 horsepower tandem seated you know, fabric uh, primary trainer. And uh, they put that landing gear on the airplane because the gear sticks out a little bit. So it gave a bit more drag on the downline. They originally they originally were flush riveted like a fighter. And then they took out the flush rivets and put in normal rivets. Mm. There's a lot, of, a lot of neat history in that airplane, uh, which is why, why we wanted to get it. And I kind of thought, you know, it's the perfect blend because it, it has that Warbird history. But it's not a military airplane per se. It was built for competition and uh, specifically for the World Airbag Championships. And there's only 80 left, of which at the time only 19 were flying. Wow. Because when the Russians moved after off the Yak-50, they developed a plane, the Yak-55, and eventually the Sukhoi line of aircraft. Well, in, in the Soviet Union, they didn't park them and sell them. I mean, they just cut their wings off. And so those 80 airplanes that survived, most of them ended up in barns in Eastern Europe. And then they started to come out to the West in the 1990s, you know, after Perestroika and Glasnost started and the Berlin Wall came down and those kind of things. So, yeah, so we started looking at this airplane, and the more I read about it, the more interested I was in it. Uh, we started talking to, to people, and we located one in Australia, and it was in a private collection. So this guy had bought it in 94. Uh, he had, it was a, the, our particular airplane won twice at the Worlds in the 1980. I think it was 1980 and 81, actually. Um, and it had been put in a barn so that no one would cut the wings off of it and destroy it. And this guy, this this very wealthy Australian who had a collection of airplanes, and he had all kinds of stuff. Like he had like Spitfires, and he had a Hawker Hunter jet, I think, at one point. And you know, he had like a Firefly, and I mean, he just had all these different vintage um, airplanes, mostly piston uh, propeller-driven aircraft, but some jets mm -hmm. and turboprops. 
And he found it in the, in the 90s, and he actually took it to Moscow, to the Yakovlev Design Bureau, who built it, and said, can you redo the wing? Because there were some structural failures in the early Yak-50s. Another reason it was replaced was because of the number of deaths flying the aircraft with structural issues. And it's not a terribly forgiving airplane, to be honest. It's not, it's, right. yeah. It will depart controlled flight very easily. And unlike airplanes that have um, a semi-symmetrical uh, airfoil, like an extra, for example, that can regain control of flight really quick. The Yak is much heavier and has a different airfoil, so it's not as forgiving in that regard. So they that's part of the reason they got rid of it. But um, they took it to back to the factory in Moscow and had them redo the wings, and they repainted it uh, back into fighting colors. So it's, the first 100 Yaks came out white with a red stripe and basically either said DOSAF or CCCP, like, you know, 1970s hockey yeah. teams, right? Yeah, the next 200 or so came out, they were painted as an homage to the Yak fighter squadrons of World War II. And ours was painted um, in late winter colors after our Operation Barbarossa, which is where the Nazi Germans invaded uh, into Russia. And it's painted in, the squadron that our plane is painted in was a Yak-1 squadron. Um, so anyways, they redid the airplane. They put checkers on it for competition flying because obviously camouflage doesn't work well against a gray sky. And they sent it to Australia where it sat in his collection until we acquired it in 2018. And it wow. flew six times. Crazy. It only has 250 so it's, it's hours on fresh. it. Yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. It's, a, it's yeah. in wonderful condition. Uh, it's a, It was originally built in 76, but it was essentially built back from scratch in 1994. So it's not really that old an airframe anymore with all that they did with it. They put wingtip fuel, uh, not wingtip, they put wing tank fuel uh, with fuel pumps into it to extend its range. Um, so they did all these great mods for us. And thanks for that. So it's, <laughs> it sat in Australia and it didn't fly. And this older gentleman, he moved to Singapore. He was a quite wealthy businessman, as you can imagine. And uh, his health started to deteriorate. So they were looking to sell the collection. And so I reached out and said, hey, I'd be interested in doing it. And uh, someone who was doing brokerage for them basically said back, sure, you can take that in the Spitfire. And I said, there's no way I can buy a Spitfire <laughs> unless you're giving it to me for the same price of the Yak. And uh, they said no. So um, we went, we kind of talked with them back and forth a little bit to see if we could even do it. And then I went and talked to our maintainer in May of 2018. And I said, "What do you?" Th his name is Doug Wilson. He's he, he and I have been partners for a long time. He's an integral part of our team. And I said, what do you think about this? You know, if you think this is a good idea, I might do it. If you don't think this is a good idea, then I'll walk away now and bug you about it later. And he said, no, we might as well just do it. And he said, if anybody's going to do something like this, it'll be you. I don't know if that's true or not, but he was pretty <laughs> sure I would do it. So yeah. I, uh, I started going through the motions of doing that. And, you know, when you exp First of all, because it was a former Soviet airplane from a military, you can't just ship it. You can't just buy it and ship it. It's like X surplus. Even though the Yak-50 never served in an actual military because it's military surplus, um, there's international trade conventions that govern where things can go. So the first step was to export it uh, off the Australian registry, and that required quite a bit of paperwork uh, to up to and including speaking um, uh, through the Russians at their Commonwealth of Independent States, you know, for lack of a better term, ambassador, like yeah. <laughs> at the UN. And so we had that all done. And they, of course, immediately said, we have no interest in the aircraft. Uh, I was really uh, lucky. There's a gentleman named John Sessions. He has the Heritage Flight, Cl uh, Flight Foundation down in Everett. And he's involved in air shows, so I know him through there. So I was able to speak with him. And he gave me – he's a, such a gentleman. I always say if I ever grow up, I hope I, hope I grow up like him. But he uh, <laughs> he's such a gentleman. He said he, – he gave me a bunch of advice on how to do that, including this company in – 
in the United States that basically does the equivalency of a title search. So they go to make sure there's no liens on the aircraft, who actually owns the airplane, because you can own an airplane and not realize that you don't actually own it. So especially yeah. when you're moving across borders, and I'm trying to ship an airplane. So I phone this company in the States, and they basically tell me no, um, because they don't work with light aircraft. I mean, if I was going to buy a P-51, maybe, but otherwise they're looking at, you know, taking 767s in the deserts and selling them to other airlines. It's not really their thing to do what I was doing. And I said, oh, well, John Sessions told me uh, to chat with you. And they said, oh, you're a friend of John Sessions. So they did a huge title search for me for free. Wow. <laughs> it was amazing. Nice. Yeah. And yeah. they did all that, found out, uh, that's how I found out, you know, that I need to go through some certain steps. And through them, that led me speaking with the Australian government to get an export license for the aircraft. So you have to deregister the airplane in Australia and then get an export license for it because of this ex-military status. Right. So once that was done, um, we knew that was done, or I shouldn't say once that was done, sort of at the same time that was going on, I was talking with Transport Canada. So there is another Yak-50 in Canada. It's in Eastern Canada. Um, but every region sort of has their own, uh, their own fencing, if you will, their own silos that they work in. And so I spoke with Transport Canada to make sure that I could get a certificate of registration so that I could actually import the aircraft. And they said, sure, that's no problem. Um, incidentally, the process was supposed to take 20 days. It took just shy of five months to get done. But we went through that process. Um, and then we needed to import the aircraft. And so all of these international trade conventions and all of these different uh, international policies, you can't, it's not, it wasn't just, in my mind, I thought. It's like trying to trying to import Russian arms into totally. Canada. Basically. Like in my, yeah. in my mind, I had never done this before. And I'm very much, maybe in a bad way, but I'm very much willing to try just about anything. Like whether I'm eating a food I've never seen before or importing an airplane that I've never done before. So I'm just willing to try. So um, in my mind, I could get it to Brisbane, Australia, and then use a common shipping company that ships uh, to Vancouver Harbor Direct with goods, and that would work. But that's not at all how that works. And so I actually had to ship it to New Zealand. And from New Zealand, they shipped it to Oakland, California, and there was paperwork on that leg. And then from Oakland to Vancouver was a walk in the park. It's because Canada and the U.S. do trade all the time. So it wasn't a huge deal. But I ended up using a company called Coal International. And they're essentially a freight forwarder, um, but they specialize in odd and unique things. Like when you want to send helicopters uh, to Mozambique uh, to do something with pest control and your helicopter is sitting in Switzerland – Coal International is the type of company you call, and they do that with <laughs> helicopters in Canada to go fight forest fires in other nations. Um, and they have experience with it because they shipped Kamov helicopters, also a Russian design, Soviet, well, I guess it'd be Ukrainian, but so ex-Soviet design, uh, over to Australia to fight forest fires. So they were totally familiar with this whole process. So I will say that they were a little bit, not a lot, but they were a little bit more expensive than what I originally had budgeted for and more expensive than their competition, but they had all the expertise to do it. And they basically greased the wheels everywhere it needs to go. It got to the point where I would ask them questions and they would say, Jeff, we're going to send you a document to sign and that's going to be done. And I'd say, well, what does it mean? They're like, all of the things you're concerned about is in this document. And when you sign it, it's done. This is what we do for a living. So yeah, we used awesome. them. Yeah, they were they were hugely instrumental in making it smooth. So that got the airplane to Canada. So on May 6, 2019, exactly one year to the date, it showed up on our hangar uh, in Abbotsford. And I have to be really honest about it. Prior to the plane showing up, I was very concerned about the safety of the ship. You Because know, ships, I fly many times to Hawaii. Uh, from Vancouver, and if you're doing daytime, you can see the swells down there. And <laughs> ships have their their sea cans fall off them more regularly than you'd realize. And so I was very oh, yeah. nervous about it. And the other thing I was nervous about is I didn't have a chance to go down and fly the aircraft. 
Luckily, through having some other people that I know in air shows, uh, we were able to talk to an Australian air show group, and they knew the airplane, they knew who owned it, and they knew the person who was maintaining it in status to get it ready for sale. His name is Tony, so I called Tony. Tony, by the way, is not just this old Australian guy who works on airplanes. He used to race Hawker Sea Furies, and he, his, his experience was, I mean, he was very modest, or you wouldn't know it, but then he would say something, and you would ask a question, like, oh, how do you know about the Centurious engine? Oh, when I used to race Sea Furies kind of thing. <laughs> and a very modest gentleman. And so he went up and did the test flights on the airplane for us and reported back to us. And so I was nervous about the quality of the airplane. I bought an airplane I hadn't actually physically seen up close. And of course, I was worried about this transit in the CCAN. And all of that was gone the second those doors opened. I, I, I kind of say it was very similar to when my son was born uh, in terms of elation. And that's not an exaggeration because you're relieved that the plane is here and it's not damaged. Just like I was happy that my son was mostly not damaged. That's going to be questionable as he gets older. <laughs> and uh, and that, uh, that it was worth all that struggle. So then we had the airplane in our hangar. We had a whole maintenance team, so Doug Wilson and Mike Yee, who worked for Wilson Aviation, and Doug and I worked hand-in-hand with the Jeff Lauder Air Show's brand, I guess you could say. Um, we've worked together forever. Another gentleman named Je- Jeff Rankini, who's an engineer, owns a Nangchang himself, and is just into aviation. He's just a very helpful person. And this other gentleman named uh, Kyle Winia, who actually we met because he wanted to do a video documentary of us bringing this airplane in and he's doing a small YouTube mini series on it, uh, going through nice. the process of training. Yeah. He's, he does a great job. Yeah. He's a draftsman by trade, but uh, he's definitely in the videography and aviation. And he ended up coming, I mean, he helped us put the wings on. He was part of the team. And then myself nice. and my wife, um, it took five days to get that airplane in pieces into an airplane that looked like an airplane. And we started that engine on that fifth day. And what a relief to hear that thing start up. So that and was the process just to get it nice. together. And then and that... You've now flown it a little bit too now. So. I have, yeah. So that that took us until uh, basically the second week of May. Uh, we didn't fly the airplane until October 2nd of that year. And, uh, and I'm not throwing uh, stones in a glass house when I say this because we have an extremely good working relationship with Transport Canada, uh, both, uh, both with the maintenance side as well as air operations side. And there are some really, we're very lucky in Abbotsford to have some really dedicated and wonderful people. Unfortunately, um, they have been facing cutbacks for years uh, to the point that it's very hard to get things done. So when the right people got the information in front of them, it was done very quickly. But to get our requests for for example, as a special certificate of airworthiness, um, to get these things in front of the right people took months and months and months. So we spent our entire summer that we planned to be training in the Yak, um, uh, not doing anything, just waiting for, for Transport Canada. And like I say, this is not a dig at them, the people that they have working uh, in the Abbotsford office and everybody that we've ever dealt with in transport. They're, they've all been wonderful, great people, um, but unfortunately they're short-staffed uh, due to funding. So yeah. it took a yeah. long time. So it was October 2nd is when we finally got our first flight in. Wow. And so how does it compare to the Nanchang? I I kind of get the feeling the Nanchang is a bit of a like a graceful aerobatics machine and the the Yak is like a tumbling toy. That is uh <laughs> that is a pretty good way to describe it. So 
they're very different in how they fly. So just before uh, we get into that, I would just like to say this because I know people are listening to this. It is not a turnkey airplane, and it wasn't a matter of me just going out and firing this thing up. It's a single-seat airplane. It, it has a reputation for being very un dynamically unstable. It has some very unforgiving characteristics in it. And like I said, there's only a single seat. So you don't go up and get dual instruction in this airplane. So prior to doing that, we talked about the plan brief, execute debrief. Well, that's exactly what we followed. Uh, the entire flight test program on that aircraft was was pretty much penned down to a five-minute window on every exercise, how many taxi tests we're going to do, what we're looking to do, what we're looking to fix. Um, it wasn't just getting in and flying. It took a lot of preparation to get me ready to fly. It took a lot of preparation to make sure the plane was ready to fly and to make sure that my entire team was involved in a safety process there. Uh, we use the ATM shield at our at Jeff Letter Air Shows, like at our company, our business, avoid trap and manage, right? And so everybody's responsible to avoid trap and manage risks and threats. Um, that's something I've adopted from the airlines and we just bring it into, into this business. Um, so when everybody was ready and all of the tests were done, that's when we finally did the flight. So it wasn't just going and starting it in Yahoo. It was very planned out. So the first flight plan was to do this. We we're going to take off with the aircraft at 82% power. It has a tremendous thrust to weight ratio. And so we don't need all that power on takeoff for that first flight. So the plan was to take off and fly above the Abbotsford Airport. This is all, of course, going in conjunction, um, uh, both with, if required, crash fire rescue services and airport operations, who we advise we're doing this first initial test flight on, as well as through air traffic control uh, services. Uh, I am a huge fan of the Abbotsford Airport air traffic controller. I'm not just pumping them because they're nice to me. I'm, I can honestly say that I fly to JFK in busy t peak periods or fly to other major airports around, uh, around the globe, and they are easily some of the best controllers I've ever worked with. Anyhow, so we plan out this whole flight. We taxied out. Everybody was ready. We took off with 82% power, and then the plan was to fly up above the airfield where I'd fly the aircraft in general handling characteristics, but more importantly, in the low-energy flight regime. Not low altitude, but low power, low speed, and with the gear down because I don't know what its characteristics are, and so I wanted to fly it there. I stalled it once with the gear down, just briefly, um, and I flew it away right away. I was not going up there to like test its stall character and spin characters. It was just, <laughs> just to know where that was. Um, and so it was very brief. It was all videoed. You can't even really tell I did. It just looks like I was flying slow and then flew fast. Uh, I took it to onset is essentially what I did with it. Mm -hmm. um, we flew around there uh, flying profiles at various speeds and approach speeds and approximate landing speeds so I would know what that was like. Once I was satisfied that the low energy flight regime uh, wasn't, you know, bringing up any points that of major concern, we brought it in to do three low and overs. This is not an air show low and over. This is not the 240 knots, you know, five feet off the, no, not at all. This is where we come into ground effect with the aircraft in the landing configuration, but then we just fly it in ground effect for the, as long as we feel like, and then we do a go around and do it again. Um, this is so we can get a feel for the difference in the low energy flight regime from when it's in the air to when it's in ground effect, because that does change the characteristics, as you know, um, of how mm. the aircraft will fly. So we did that three times. On the first one, I actually touched the wheels because, you know, it's a very nose-high airplane, uh, similar to some of the big piston warbirds. And as a result, uh, when you're sitting on the ground, I spent hours in the airplane facing an open horizon at our hangar so I could see where the sight lines were on the canopy, which is what you do in a normal airplane. But there's nothing. The canopy's higher than the horizon. So you're <laughs> looking on the fuselage and the wing for that. And as a result of that, um, and when that's the landing attitude, incidentally, is it is predominantly landed three-point because it has a nine-foot prop. 
And if the plane is ever to be landed or brought to a true two-point attitude yield, the prop will hit the ground. And wow. so now that I've experienced an airplane, if it's windy, I'll do a like a tail low landing. So it's almost, it's not really a two-point, but it's not a three-point either, where right. I can fly it on a little bit. Um, but the recommendation from every pilot I've ever known that's flown a Yak-50 and from the actual manufacturer was to three-point. So uh, we planned to land three-point. So the first time I was at Ground Effect, I misjudged that. It bounced. And uh, I applied full power uh, out of uh, out of uh, not necessity, but out of just a normal habit during a go around when you don't like what you see, you apply full power, uh, reconfigure the aircraft for climb and, and leave the area, essentially climb to altitude. And that was the first time I had an opportunity to feel the full thrust to weight ratio of that aircraft. And I, I can't really explain it to any other airplane I've flown. It's more than any aerobatic plane. It's more than the P-51. The only thing I can say it's similar to is in 2015, I had the opportunity to race a Ferrari against a Lamborghini down the runway on practice day at the air show, and, uh, which is an amazing opportunity. And yeah. it was probably twice the acceleration rate of the Ferrari. So I, if you want to, like being pushed in your seat, it was, it was quite tremendous. Hmm. Yeah, it was the first chance for me to do that. To be honest quick, with you. Quick, yeah. quick on the rudder to uh, Oh, yeah, right and, fast, yeah. yeah. But the thing is that the round engines – you know, you bring the power in slow in a round engine, you bring the power off slow in a round engine. Now, the golden rule that, that that most people use is you should never be more than three seconds from one power setting to the next, right? Or uh, never right. less than, I should no say. Less, yeah. yeah, so you're bringing the power in slow. The airplane has a massive rudder. So it's actually quite docile in a rudder. Like if you wanted to talk stick and rudder airplanes when they're in the air flying, the Nangchang is way more of a stick and rudder airplane and requires more finesse to fly basic aerobatics in the yak does because the yak was built for that and the nang chang wasn't so um so you're bringing in the power slow enough that it's not rolling on it uh, on its back if you were to apply power very quickly in that engine yes you would exceed the roll and rudder capabilities of that engine you would invert it but um so we flew away we came back around and we did that two more times and then it was time to do that first landing and uh we came in for that first landing and uh, and i uh I did the opposite. I came in lower uh, on the profile, and I and I bounced it. And it, it wasn't a huge bounce, but it was enough of a bounce that if it had been in like a decathlon or another airplane or Harvard or a plane I was familiar with, I might have thought about saving it. Generally, I don't though, because there's no real reason. I mean, you just go around and do it again. But it yeah. wasn't even a question. That we'd already briefed that. If there's a bounce, we're out of here. We're not going to try and do that. So as soon as we bounced, I applied power and we went around. And the next one, I came in on a more standardized round engine profile, which would be like 3.5 to 4 degrees. You do come in steeper in those airplanes mm. uh, for visibility over the nose reasons. And so this is no flaps, I should say. So you need the visibility oh, wow. over the nose. So we mm. came in probably about th 3.6, 3.7, somewhere in that. Like it's you're estimating, but based on what I saw in the lights, I came in that profile. And that one was a, it was a good three-pointer. And we rolled it in. We came back in. And the temptation right there is to, you know, Cheers the champagne and whatever, but we couldn't. We had to get down. We had to debrief it and go through it all and then look at video analysis. But but it was a tremendous day because everybody worked really hard on our team to get that plane there. I mean, I'm just a pilot, really. Um, maybe that's the branding is my name, and 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 maybe I'm the one who gets to have the fun flying it, but I can't do it without every single other person being there, and I think that's probably the same for everybody that does this. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a huge success for our team to have done it. And also, it was kind of neat because not too many people get to fly a high-performance single-seat airplane, right, with no training. And, and I just had to rely on previous experience and other types of airplanes 
Yeah, I imagine there's no POH, at least not an English one. Yeah, there's not. I, it's so funny you should say that. Um, we got some manuals that were translated from the Polish, um, and the translations were as terrible as my Chinese manuals from the People's Liberation Army Air Force for the Nanchang. So I ended up uh, getting Duolingo and reading Russian. Wow. For real, yes. yeah. And uh, yeah. my Russian's terrible. I'm not going to give you an example. But <laughs> but it's enough that we have neighbors in our townhouse complex that speak Russian, and I can hear. I understand what they're saying now. But Oh, that's cool. Yeah, Duolingo. Yeah. I ended up using a lot of that and Google Translate. And then yeah. there are no performance charts for the aircraft at all. And as part of our flight test program, we actually developed them for this airplane. So now we are circulating out to the Yak-50 community, the few people that do have them. We do have performance charts for the aircraft, and that took us months and months of test flights to get. But we did get the data, and then we had it verified by sending it to other Yak-50s and make sure that they verify the information. You don't want it to just be our Yak, right? You wanted to make sure that uh, I didn't make an error in the math or an error there. So we've we've done yeah. that now for the Yak. We, they call nice. it the egg, but it's basically the VN graph, which is the maneuvering corners of the aircraft for G. It'd be cool to find the pilots who won in that plane in 8081 and... Oh, I would love that. Yeah. I I would love that. It would be wonderful to have an opportunity to meet anybody that flew these up when they were competing. Yeah, I don't know if you've been able to develop a a show with it yet, but uh... so we're in the initial stages of developing a routine right now. Um, we've been out flying uh, this last basically we're Monday to Friday out there, and I'm doing uh, between one and two flights a day. Every day the weather's good, so we're doing at least five flights a, a week sometimes more. And that's exactly what we're doing now. Uh, we're done our spring training. We finished all that uh, flight testing that we needed to do. So now we're actually developing the routine. So right now we're working on a high show. Now, originally for the high show, I was hoping to do something a little different. Um, but what we're basically going to do is we're going to take part of our old show and we're just going to make it more dynamic. And so uh, unlike the Warbird that's limited uh, with some of its maneuvers, this aircraft can do things like a lobshevik, which is a gyroscopic tumble, a tumble. We can do shoulder rolls, and we can do tail slides, inverted flat spins, inverted spins. There's a lot more maneuvers that we can do. Square loops, for example, you'd never be able to do a square loop in the Nangcheng. It wouldn't sustain <laughs> yeah. the G-force or have an inverted fuel oil system for the top part. Whereas this airplane's a 9G airplane. Uh, generally, our square loop we fly at 7G, but the uh, the capabilities of the aircraft are going to allow us to to do some really exciting things with it, and we are starting. To put that together now, we're hoping to do our evaluation in the middle of um, middle of July, hopefully, and we will have nice. something together. But aerobatically speaking, it's a most airplanes are better balanced than the Yak fifty. So the Yak fifty has very heavy ailerons, very light uh, uh, pitch authority, and medium rudder. So it's basically the the least desirable characteristics to fly aerobatics with, which is funny for an airplane that was designed like that. But I guess that harkens back to how the Yak-3s and the Yak-7s and Yak-9s, the planes that pre uh, preceded this one, I guess the Yak-18 too probably, preceded this this airplane design. Um, the wing is fast, but the there's no boost in the giant ailerons that are out there, which would have originally been much smaller than this. So the control forces are massive in roll. Anytime you're above about 270 kilometers an hour, and this aircraft has a top speed of 450 kilometers an hour or 280 miles per hour. But it's very heavy in the roll. When you're at slower speeds, the roll rate is, is fantastic. And this is one of only a few planes that I've flown where it has such a high degree of thrust to weight that you can do a maneuver like a tail slide and decide you don't like the tail slide, apply power, 
and fly out of the tail slide while going backwards. And I've never <laughs> wow. done that in an airplane in my life. That yeah. was at full, full power, which I wouldn't use at an air show, and I'm not going to develop that into a maneuver, but it was certainly something that was incredible to, to experience. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was if something else. It it does tumble very well, but being a much larger design for an aerobatic aircraft, it you know doesn't have the roll rate of an extra 300, which, you know, with that the spads can be up to 400 degrees per second. This is rolling closer to about, uh, at slower speeds, uh, probably 150 degrees per second, and at high speeds, probably 200 degrees per second. But uh, yeah, it's a wonderful, oh. it's pretty wild What's, flying airplane. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny when you look at photos of it, especially like side profile, like it's very purposely built for one thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, the pilot's right in the middle. And yeah. Yeah, you sit behind the wing, right? So that's, mm -hmm. that's, uh, that has some interesting uh, effects on me as a pilot, actually. Um, if you're sitting back there, um, the G and the, the positive and negative G is not really affected as much, but yaw is felt very differently because I'm behind the center of pressure or the, the pendulum of motion. I'm behind yeah. that that pivot point. Uh, the, you're swing, swinging around a lot more. Yeah, so when you do like a tumble, so you're going to be – rolling to the right yawing to the left and you know negative three negative four g initially anyways to get it going over the top it literally slings you out sideways so we actually put in a seven point harness it originally had a five point harness we put in a seven point harness with a ratchet to really tighten me into that thing <laughs> because you're behind wow. that pivot point and it's that much more dramatic being behind it and, and that's the probably one of the only airplanes i've flown where you're that far behind that the pivot point because that's not common in warbirds no awesome and you said you had um a story of why you wear a helmet yes and and suit and gloves all the time yeah so it's a pretty uh um the probably the most important part so uh, when i first started flying i was always wearing a cloth helmet with goggles um because i just like the look of it and i started when i started flying air shows uh i talked to a gentleman um uh, Bruce Evans, and he pulled me aside and he said, you know, I used to fly a Stearman and I was flying one for a museum and I had the engine come off. And the only reason I lived is because I was wearing a helmet. And he's like, I know maybe in your mind the helmets are hot or heavy or too modern. But he said, I really highly suggest that you look into that because um, I am only alive today because I was wearing a helmet. And so... I, I had a Nomex flight suit at the time, but it was a 4.5 millimeter um, weight, which is what they use in an ejection seat equipped aircraft because their exposure to fire is very short. Hmm. And another person pulled me aside and said, you know, um, it's a very sad death, but uh, someone in the air show uh, industry died a couple of years ago and when they crashed at Fairchild Air Force Base. I believe it was Fairchild. And... Uh, he was upside. His name is Eddie, and he was upside down in his steerman. He didn't die from the crash. He died from the fire. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of took those two to heart, and I I went to a company called Gibson and Barnes, and I had them custom make this black and green one. I wanted black for professionalism and green for the military heritage of the Nangshang, and I had them manufacture it in twice that Nomex. And I'll tell you, it doesn't breathe. It is extremely hot. Never mind the workout you're getting flying the aerobatics. It is extremely hot. But, you know, it's going to give me the difference between, you know, six seconds in open flame and th they say up to, you know, 35 seconds. And that might make the difference between being alive and being dead. 
I won't yep. ever get in a light airplane to do what I do without a helmet. It doesn't matter if I'm flying my Nang Chang to go meet someone at Chilliwack for pie. I wear my Nomex gloves. I wear my Nomex flight suit. I wear boots and I wear my parachute and I wear my helmet and I make sure that they are all serviceable. And after a while, I kind of realized my wife's wearing a Bose headset and doesn't have one. So she wanted a helmet. Now, the helmet I wear is quite expensive. It's made in New Zealand. It's actually an NHRA rated helmet. So that's a racing helmet. Um, unlike the uh, Gentex make them, uh, they're an HGU series helmets, kind of like what you see the Snowbirds wear. They are not mm. NHRA rated. They will give you some protection. Those are not what you want to hit your head with on a on a stab if you bail out or if there's a crash. Uh, yeah. But they at least offer something. And there was a company in that, Lani didn't like the old style, because mine's modern, but it's wrapped in leather and has the goggles on it. I even have a mask for it if I'm flying high altitude. It's all that stuff. She didn't want that. She wanted something that looked a little more modern. So we went and talked with a company in California called uh, Bonehead Composites, which we were introduced to through other people that were flying aerobatics. And it has the same impact rating. And one step further, my son has a helmet. We took a David Clark headset and bought the David Clark shell for it. And I won't let anybody sit in my airplane in a flight unless they're wearing a Nomex flight suit, closed-toed shoes at the bare minimum, uh, along with that helmet. Uh, because the the difference um, between life and death for two people that I've talked to was the fire protection they were wearing and the head impact protection they were wearing. And so I think, uh, I think it's super important. I know I was listening to your last po- podcast and... I get it. There's going to be people that say, why are you wearing a helmet? You're 172. You know what? We talked about a little earlier in this, you know, it's the no offense and the yeah, buts. who cares? Yeah. Who, yeah. who cares? It, it doesn't matter what people think. It only matters that you're safe, right? And you're, if someone thinks you look and is going to make fun of you from, you know, wearing your helmet in your, in your 172 and it makes you feel safer, then do it. If you're not flying aerobatics, but you choose to still wear a parachute, so be it. I always wear the same things on every flight because you want to get in the process of always doing the same thing, right? Like it's a standardized operating procedure. So mm. I, I generally, mm. I generally wear, unless something is mechanically broken, like unless my headset had a problem and I had to wear a headset and I wouldn't fly aerobatic or formation flying if I don't have a helmet, period. If I had to ferry my airplane to a maintenance place while wearing one helmet to have that helmet fixed, for example, that, sure, that's fine. But yeah. Generally speaking, and even then, I'd probably just ship it and drive it. You know, like it's just it's just not worth it. It doesn't matter what other people think. And I know that there's this perception out there that if you're wearing a helmet, that maybe you're trying to be a an aerobatic pilot or a military pilot or try to look like a fighter pilot or you want to whatever. But it doesn't it doesn't matter because I wore the cloth and goggles because I wanted to have an older look, not a newer look. And I I don't even feel comfortable if I'm not wearing my helmet now. Yeah, it doesn't matter it's, what people it's, think. Yeah, it's one of those things. If you if something happens and you left them back in the hangar, you're gonna look pretty dumb. Right? You know, so. it's it's a cultural thing that'll change. It's it's like uh, it's like um, my parents are in their seventies and they didn't have seatbelts in cars. And if you wore a seatbelt, like why would you need a seatbelt in your car? <laughs> yeah, I guess there's an argument to be made that if you're gonna go fly um, straight and level, um, you don't you don't need it. But I would say there's an equal argument to say that you could have an accident on your next landing. Or it's the same reason that I wear, I wear sunglasses with my helmet. Um, I remove the lenses that they come with and I get polycarbonate lenses that are of a less tint. And I don't Mm -hmm. do that because I want to have a brighter image. I do that because polycarbonate will stop a bird coming in uh, through the cockpit. And so if you have a bird strike and it hits you in the face, at least I'm not blind. 
and I wear those sunglasses whether uh, I wear those I wear those sunglasses at every unless it's absolutely dark out. And with my wife's helmet, um, she only flies a day. She wears that down even if it is dark because she knows that there's a risk involved. I think it's just free insurance. Yeah. If you have the equipment, you might as well use it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks and, for having uh, me. I think we'll have you back on at some point and there's much more to talk about. And sure. I look, I look forward to seeing uh, the yak in action. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah thanks. Well, oh, actually, um, how can people find you? Uh, the, you know, we're not really huge on social media as much anymore, um, but uh, we do have a Facebook page under Jeff Ladder Air Shows. Um, I am open to people talking to me at any time. They can email me at info at jeffladderairshows.com or if they want to reach out, uh, they can go to our website, jeffladderairshows.com and our email and our phone number is there. So if you want to text us or phone us, you have any questions about aerobatics, about air shows, about airline flying, about any of the things that, that I can offer, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We're happy to talk. And if uh, I'm not able to find that information, then I will use my resources of friends uh, that I do have that are much smarter than I am, and I'll find that information for you. Speaking of helmets, this summer I went and got myself one of the Sky Cowboys helmets. And I've been wearing it for every flight this summer, and I truly believe that I will forever wear a helmet while flying now. Even on long cross countries, midsummer when it was hot, it didn't bother me. It's just become a habit and a natural thing to do now is put my helmet on. Who knows, maybe one day it'll save my life. Thanks again to Jeff for that awesome chat. Please go to his YouTube channel and watch his videos. If nothing else, it's gonna make you realize you do not prepare enough for potential emergencies. His diligence, and preparation is an example for all of us to follow. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Flying British Columbia, and you can check out show notes, videos, podcast links at flyingbc.com. Thanks for listening and fly safe. <laughs>